This Boss Barista episode is brought to you by Ernex. If you've worked in the coffee industry, you probably know Ernex well. You've used their products to clean your equipment. You've attended an event that they've supported. You're probably even using Kefiza at home to clean your pots and pans. One of Ernex's latest advances is a range of environmentally friendly cleaners called BioCaf. BioCaf products are made entirely from plant and mineral-based ingredients and are fully biodegradable. They're available for both commercial and household coffee equipment, so you can use them at the cafe just as easily as you can use them at home. But Ernex is doing more than just making eco-friendly cleaners. They've partnered with people like me and several other coffee professionals to highlight some of the best sustainability efforts in the industry with the BioCaf Sustainability Series. I'm super excited to be part of this initiative and to have another platform to share my thoughts on topics like sustainability. Visit the Ernex website to read my recent piece on Onyx Coffee Labs switch to oat milk in their latest cafe and learn more about BioCaf by visiting www.ernex.com. Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. Rachel Fowler is one of the co-founders of Tone Lay, a zero-waste clothing company that believes in promoting equal value across the supply stream. Like coffee, most of the clothing we wear goes through hundreds of hands and relies on a system of manufacture and exchange that's a relic of colonialism. In this episode which is at points very rambling, but covers a lot of important topics quickly. Rachel explains some of the parallels between how coffee is bought and sold and how clothes are made. We talk about who gains and who loses in a world that relies on fast fashion or the manufacturer of cheap clothing with quick turnaround times for garment factories. Former guests have talked about the idea of risk and how it applies to a global supply stream. When an item has to go through so many hands to get from point A to point B, how can risk be shared responsibly? Oftentimes, it's not. In coffee, a lot of the risk lands on farmers, whose profits fluctuate based on what roasters are willing to pay, even though roasters have a vested interest in keeping the coffee industry going. In fast fashion, the risk shifts to factory workers, who deal with designers who might cancel orders if they're not doing well in stores or fluctuate their request, which means anticipating labor needs can be really tricky. I know it might seem strange to talk about fashion on a coffee and food podcast, but the parallels between the two industries show how systems meant to benefit those in power aren't accidents. The same systems show up over and over in industries where there are huge profits to be made at the expense of others. Here's Rachel. So Rachel, to kick things off, could you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, My name is Rachel Fowler, and I'm one of the co-creators of Tonelay. How did Tonelay begin? What's the story of Tonelay? So in 2008, I had the opportunity to go to Cambodia on a Fulbright Fellowship and learn about traditional textiles from craftspeople who were working there. 
primarily through fair trade organizations um, using fair trade as a capital FT and also fair trade in quotes. Um, <laughs> and I was really, you know, fair trade was really starting to become more of a thing in fashion. And so I had just started to learn about fair trade and I was interested in um, how it could be a solution to, you know, some of fashion's problems. Having graduated from a textile program, I knew that there were a lot of problems in the fashion industry, but I didn't really know, like I, I wasn't really seeing any solutions at that time. And so I wanted to go and learn from makers directly about what was working for them and what wasn't working for them in this um, movement and in this, in their businesses and, and just, um, you know, learn about the traditional crafts that they were making. So I got to do this year of research and um, really hands-on experience working and learning from craftspeople, um, which was really incredible. Um, and I was extremely um, obviously privileged to be able to do that and to have that opportunity. Um, but what I kind of saw is, you know, at the same time that I moved to Cambodia, obviously 2008, um, the recession happened right off, you know, it sort of started right after I had moved to Cambodia. And that really dramatically impacted the sales of a lot of these, um, you know, a, a lot of these makers. And there was also at that time, you know, 2008 kind of birthed the, I mean, I think 2008 and the recession really led to the rise of fast fashion as well. Um, because those companies started to realize that they could you know, sell more and more products at cheaper prices. So it really accelerated the pace of fast fashion. And, um, you know, Cambodia is also a country where a lot of fast fashion is produced. So that, you know, I, I saw that, how that was affecting people firsthand. Um, you know, the price for fairly made textiles was essentially going down while the production of fast fashion was ramp ramping up. And I saw, you know, both extremes. Um, in Cambodia, where you saw like the impact of these huge fast fashion companies through their manufacturers in Cambodia um, on the environment as well as on the workers, and also how you know some of these groups that were striving to be fair trade and to produce things um, in a better way were also struggling because the market for fair trade was kind of considered luxury, and so that was you know, also, they were also struggling at the same time. Um, and, you know, on a very personal note, I was also having a hard time finding clothes that I really wanted to wear and felt comfortable wearing after seeing all of this. <laughs> and so, you know, even within the small, you know, markets within Cambodia, there was, there were a lot of products that were handmade and very beautiful, but not really clothes that you could wear on a daily basis. And then you also had, you know, these massive markets for kind of cast offs from the larger garment factories. Um, a lot of things that had failed quality control or um, were overstocked. Um, and so that was kind of flooding the markets. And, you know, on a personal note, I was like, you know, I don't feel good <laughs> wearing most of the clothes that are available out there for me. So how did these observations, what you were seeing in the fashion industry, translate to wanting to start a clothing company? There was a group of people through one of the nonprofits that I was partnering with um, who, who basically said, hey, you know, we want to start this business, um, but we don't really know like how to and, you know, can you kind of help us and so forth. So we kind of did like an exchange of knowledge. 
And that kind of led like a bit organically to starting the first iteration of the business. Um, and, you know, eventually it kind of became clear. I mean, my goal was to basically help this group of women start this business. And then my goal was always to leave <laughs> and let them kind of like take over the business and let it kind of keep going from there. But there was a bit of a conundrum with, um, you know, the market in Cambodia where, you know, there was this market for higher end products um, to sell to like tourists and expats. Um, but the problem with like the market in Cambodia is a lot of the products that were so like sold locally to like the like people in Cambodia were actually also being made under unfair conditions. Like in the tailoring workshops, there's kind of a like an exploitative culture where even within Cambodia, you know, families sort of work together and maybe like the head tailor gets paid, but everybody else gets like free room and board, but they might not actually get paid or they send money home to it's, you know, and, and that's kind of like the system is like these family tailoring workshops where that kind of rely also on unfair pay structures. So it was a bit of an organic process and, you know, a, a lot of evolution in conversation with the team that we developed. Um, and, you know, the needs of people changed as we grew as well. So there were a lot of ups and downs, but essentially I ended up staying in Cambodia for um, seven years, working directly with makers to grow this business. Uh, we started out, you know, working on a per piece model with people working from home. And then we moved to having a production facility where people work in the facility and get, then we moved to like a salary model. And then we moved to kind of a combined model where people are paid a per piece rate plus a base, a base salary plus a per piece rate. So they can earn, you know, more depending on their, you know, output, but within a set number of hours. So there's not like long, you know, overtime hours and stuff that you see in the factories. So this is, since this is a podcast that talks to coffee folks, it might be helpful to explain how Tone Lay is structured or operates differently from the traditional business model, if there is one. Um, so it's been a lot of changes, a lot of evolution, but, you know, constantly in conversation and in um, consultation with our team in Cambodia and really centering them as the, you know, decision makers in terms of what we're doing with the business um, and what they want and what's best for them. Um, so, you know, very different, different than a traditional fashion brand that usually the way that works is you say, a designer sort of says, or a <laughs> brand says, hey, what do we want to produce? Let's go out and, you know, what's going to be good for the market? Um, let's go out and find a facility to produce that. Um, usually multiple facilities around the world. So you end up with these sort of long convoluted supply chains where the product and the customer is prioritized rather than the people who make the products being the center. And the way that we've developed our business has been much more with the makers at the center and really always asking the question, you know, what is good for the makers? And then how do we develop products that, you know, are first and foremost good for the people who make them and then secondarily are going to be sellable and good for our customers as well. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of backwards in the traditional fashion sense, but that's, that's what we do. Well, I think that's, 
amazing how you laid everything out. And I think initially someone might listen to this episode and think, what does a clothing company have to do with coffee? But you hit on so many themes that come up in coffee. And we're going to talk about a lot more of them as we go on through this conversation. But I want to lay some foundation just for folks who maybe don't know a lot about what fashion, like the fashion industry looks like or what fast fashion is. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that moment in 2008 when fast fashion became more of a thing and what that actually means, what that looks like from a supply chain standpoint. Yes. Yes. So this is really important because I think a lot of people don't understand what fast fashion is. It's a very specific term that's become very broad, broadly used. Um, but the very the specific meaning of fast so traditionally in the fashion industry, so pre two thousand eight and pre fast fashion, you would essentially have a pretty long lead time before a product got to market. So designers would be would take about like three somewhere between three to six months to develop their collections and produce really high quality samples, and do all the fit testing, fabric testing, you know, all everything that goes into making a really beautiful prototype. And then they would present those prototypes to buyers, which would be, you know, department stores and boutiques and so forth. And those buyers would then place orders based on the prototypes. And then the designers could go to the factories or their suppliers and say, hey, we have an order from a buyer for this many products. And they would then the fashion, the factory would then have three to six months to produce that order based on an actual production order from a buyer that was going to buy that item based on a prototype that's really well made and really well designed. (laughs) And then the factory would produce it and then it would get sent to, um, then it might be sent, you know, almost directly to the stores. And then the stores would have a certain, probably another three to six months to sell it. So that whole process is somewhere between 12 and 18 months. So a year to a year and a half. That's pretty, you know, that was like how the fashion industry used to work. And that's why you have, you know, the, the, the um, runways that happen six months in advance. Right. That's why you have like seasonal displays of this is, this is this season's styles, whatever that looks like. And that has kind of been denigrated, but it's actually really important to ensure um, a actual, like, it's actually really important to produce in a more ethical and sustainable manner. I know that sounds really backwards, but let me explain like the contrast situation that we're in now. So fast fashion is essentially where these businesses can be vertically integrated. They can actually take product from design to market in less than a month. And so that has resulted in, and so the way that they do that is they essentially, they don't make prototypes. They don't make samples. They don't, um, develop their products in any way. They're really just sending like some kind of sketch or what's really like a, let's call it like a tech pack or some kind of technical design. And they send that directly to the factory and they say, okay, produce like 10,000. <laughs> and then they send back the 10,000 that have not been sampled, that have not been tested, that have not been prototyped. Um, and they immediately put them in the store and they test those 10,000 items and see how fast they sell. And then if they sell well, maybe the brand will order more. And there's a lot of like data analytics and stuff that goes into this. But essentially, as you can imagine, that results in more waste, 
more an overproduction in these kind of essentially getting to like this micro season thing, which we have now where there's like stores are expected to have, you know, new products on the shelf every week instead of collections every six months. Um, and this has been a process, you know, and I'm not saying like 2008 started that, but it, it sort of jump started it because this whole thing, you know, means that they're shifting the risk onto the factories and onto the suppliers because in order to get something from design to market in a month, which is the process that used to take 18 months, you know, the factories basically have to pre-order fabric. They have to pay all these upfront costs and they also have to take on the risk of having, let's say a factory has a thousand workers. So that capacity is a risk, right? They need to pay their salaries no matter what. And this is true of Tonle as well. The factory needs to pay their salaries no matter what, whereas the brand only pays for the products that they order. So if, you know, one month they get an order for that takes up, you know, that they need like 1500 people to work on, well, they're going to outsource to a subcontractor. Um, If the next month they get, you know, an order for only 500, that's, you know, only 500 of their workers they need to make, then they've got all this spare capacity. So it, the factories essentially have to take on all that risk of the capacity of the labor. And they also have to take on the risk of buying the raw materials up front, which means that they're going to overorder their raw materials so that if a brand comes into place an order and they say, we want this really fast turnaround time, they can do that. So it seems, yeah, it seems like there's a lot of problems with that model. Yeah. <laughs> um, so first yeah. and foremost, as you mentioned, you used probably my favorite word right now, which is risk. A lot of the risk in fast fashion seems to be distributed to factories. Formal, I think really emphasizing that these are formerly uh, colonized countries or right. and continue to be colonized countries. And this is 100% a legacy of colonialism. It's just not, it's not coincidental at all that all of these countries, you know, were colonized and now continue to be colonized by this extremely exploitative, um, you know, system where we can outsource, where we as in, you know, primarily North America and Europe um, can outsource the labor. But these companies, which are, again, mostly owned by white Europeans and American men, (laughs) um, are essentially making huge amounts of profit while not having any of the risk. Um, right, exactly. Their their profits are not affected at all. They're still making money while transferring the risk of fast fashion to formally colonize and truthfully, like you said, continuing colonized countries. Yes. And a lot of that infrastructure was literally set up under colonialism. So it's just, you know, it's just it's just pretty mind blowing. Like, I mean, if you think about India, for example, like a lot of the garment industry was built under colonialism and now they're like oh look we can just kind of continue using this you know (laughs) right right there's no there's no talk of what reforming an entire system looks like especially when it's set up under a system that was meant to exploit people but then it seems like there's this sort of secondary issue of sustainability from an environmental standpoint and from a consumerist standpoint where fast fashion encourages people to buy things a lot and continue to look for new trends in fashion probably more often than they would normally do to encourage continued spending. And that's where you get the environmental waste as well of like, we need this product to be produced really quickly. 
the waste of it is inconsequential at this point. Yeah. And it's partly inconsequential because the brands and the customers who again are in those global North countries are never having to see it. Right. So it's like, I mean, I lived in Cambodia for seven years. I literally saw this waste piling up. Um, and you know, there's been, I mean, that, yeah, there's so much we could say, but essentially those negative environmental outputs are being shifted onto these countries as well. And not only in terms of the literal waste, like the cut waste that we see, for example, um, so we actually, Tonle uses scraps that come from the garment industry. I forgot to mention that earlier. But we actually get this waste literally from these huge companies via their factories because the factories have all this excess fabric now, right? And it's, some of it's on the roll, some of it's perfectly good, but they just had to order extra because they didn't know like the brands were inconsistent with their projections. Um, and again, that's another part of the risk that they're having to invest in all these raw materials. Um, but the you know, the brands like will not give them clear orders or projections until like the last minute. So anyway, there, and then there's also cutways, there's things that fail quality control, because of course, like if workers are trying to produce so fast, of course, like their quality is not going to be great. So <laughs> things are not going to be produced as well. Right. And so there's lots of extra, like the waste has increased exponentially. It's not like like I would say that the percentage of waste as compared to the product products that are being produced has increased and the number of garments that has been are being produced has increased. Like I I think and I'd have to check the statistic, but it's something like since 2010, the number of garments being produced every year has more than doubled. Um and then if you think about the waste as a percentage of that, so the waste has more than doubled as well because the waste as a percentage is higher as well. Um oh that's so really interesting. Pretty unbe- I mean it's pretty unbelievable. I mean I so I've literally seen so you know we we our team goes to these warehouses in Phnom Penh where the the scraps are collected by essentially you know these informal recycling streams they go and they get waste from the garment industry from these big factories and the factories are kind of having to like get rid of it sort of on the sly because the the brands don't want their sort of trademarked materials to get out into be made into something else right but the brands also kind of look the other way because they know that they're not buying the raw materials and they're not investing in them so they can't really say anything so um our team members go to these you know kind of warehouses where all this stuff is collected and resold and then we can pick out you know what we want but i see all kinds of things there um i see garments that are half made i've seen bales of fabric with brands names on them um, <laughs> yeah, it's That's wild. It's pretty wild. I'll just show you a video or something. It's pretty. I, I, one of the first images that I saw when I went to your website was a picture of just like stacks and stacks and stacks of garments. And I assume that that's what traditional factories would call waste. Yes, exactly. And it's, and again, I want to just really emphasize that there's a tendency to kind of villainize the factories in this situation. And, and even with this concept, and you know, I know we were going to talk more about transparency. One of the problems with talking about transparency is it sort of can get, it lets the brand say, and I want to credit my, my friend Kim here, she worked with Tonle in the past, and she now has her own podcast called Manufactured, which is really fantastic. She talks a lot about the distribution of risk and reward and why 
that needs to be reanalyzed. But so she and I had a lot of conversations about transparency and how, you know, it allows the brands to basically say, the problem is transparency. The factories are trying to hide things from us, you know? And this kind of, this way of like, okay, we're going to put the blame on the factory when in reality, we made the factory take all that risk, you know? And we're not paying high enough prices and we're not giving fair projections. So the factory is taking on all the risk. Meanwhile, we're kind of saying, oh, the issue is these bad factory managers are exploiting their workers and throwing away all this waste, (laughs) you know? Like, I just want to really re-emphasize the fact that these brands, it's very convenient for them to be able to make all the profit, but take none of this responsibility when something goes wrong. Right. It's this idea of transparency, but without thinking of the intersection of transparency and power. And accountability, right? It's like transparency, but no accountability when you're really the one that isn't providing the infrastructure and the money (laughs) to make these changes, you know? Right. And it seems totally viable for a lot of these companies to very well do so, especially these huge fast fashion companies that as you mentioned, there's no risk to their profits. They're just transferring that risk over to factories. Right. And and the way that works essentially is, again, you know, brands pay for products that are made, are fine. They pay for the final goods, right? And, it, and sometimes they don't even pay for them until 60 or 90 days after they've already got those items on their shelves. So if they aren't selling those items for any reason, they can basically find something in their contracts that says that allows them to get out of paying for those items. Right. Um, That happens in coffee too. So sorry, that happens in coffee as well. Um, And I think that that's why this is such an interesting conversation to have because there's so many parallels in the way that items that come from one place and are consumed in another place are treated because of colonialism. Like colonialism is the house that built all of this. Yeah. I I agree 100%. So so let's talk about like Tone Lay and how you're at least in 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 a small way trying to build a more ethical structure. And something that I really appreciate about your website, number 1, you don't use the word disrupt, which I hate. Disrupt. <laughs> yeah. Disrupt. You're not disrupting the 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 fashion industry. Um but number 2, you also admit your own mistakes and you talk about that you talk a lot about honesty and how you're not necessarily this big company who's trying to shake things up I mean you're trying to shake things up to the extent that you can but you're saying like this is our company and this is what we can do so I was wondering if you can talk about some of the tenants of Tone Lay that are attempting to at least chisel away at some of these colonial structures yeah I mean I think that just going back to my experiences um you know, I think when I first moved to Cambodia, I, you know, and, and this was, again, in conversation with our makers, but it was mostly like my first goal was like, let's provide jobs for people that are safe and comfortable and, you know, different than what's happening in the fashion industry. But there is this culture of, there is this culture of aid and white saviorism, especially that is also a continuation of colonialism. And mm-hmm this idea that like myself as a white person who has been, and not only a white person, but a person from, you know, North America, who's had access to a good education and uh, a lot of privileges 
that I have benefited from these, this colonialism, you know, very directly through like the riches of my culture that have been enriched through this extraction and this exploitation. Um, coming to Cambodia and then saying like, I'm going to help people, but not acknowledging that the very poverty that I was seeing was actually caused by my own like culture's history of extraction. So, so, uh, so I see what you're saying. And I think that that that's, that's hard to reframe sometimes because you're totally right. The way that so many companies in the global North and in Western countries portray themselves is this very, like, we are saving the world. We're saving these parts of the world that are being affected, but there has to be a point where we say we cause these problems. It's, it's, I mean, it's something that I'm starting to see people talk about more in like Central and South America, where, you know, in the United States, we're refusing refugees, but it's like we caused political upheaval and disruption and instability in Central America. Like, flat out um so i can see i think that that's a port that's an important framing to talk about tone lay because it's not about like oh we're we're going to again using like those buzzwords like we're going to go disrupt the fashion supply industry because these are all the problems it's saying we cause these problems we need to fix it yeah and i mean i think that's done like I, i i that's exactly what i'm trying to say and i feel like I mean, fair trade, we could get into, has a lot of problems. Like there's a lot of neocolonialism in fair trade. Um, and I think that we really, if we wanted to make trade truly fair, there has to be reparations. And I don't, and I don't want to say like one brand cannot do this on their own. And that's why I don't say our, I don't call our work reparations. Um, but there does need to be systemic reparations before things can get better because like a country like Cambodia has had so is is so resource rich, for example, um, and culturally rich, but there's been so much extraction, um, you know, for so long that it is really there is it it would be really hard for people to start you know their own new whole new infrastructure of thriving businesses because there has been this long history of extraction, and so there has to be a giving and and I. I one thing I've been thinking about a lot is the like the word giving back. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, like we do need to give it back. We need to give it all back. <laughs> like, right. We took it. Right. And I think if we could say like, I think that giving back is off, often framed in a very white savior way. But if we actually acknowledge that giving back means like literally, no, I took this, I need to give it back, <laughs> you know? Um, right. And really sit with that and really think about like what that means and how are all the ways in which you've benefited from this long history of extraction. And again, like no one company can solve that. But what, what you know, we're trying to do. And I think like, you know, this is me kind of this has been my journey. But, you know, going from saying, oh, I just I come to Cambodia, I'm seeing all this sadness and this poverty and I want to help and I want to do something about it. But then having that realization, living there and and seeing like that ongoing impact of the, the neocolonialism in the garment industry and in the aid industry and saying like, no, I'm actually part of these problems. I'm actually part of why these problems are happening. And if anything, the best I can do is to A, reduce my harm and B, you know, try to return and redistribute some of that wealth that's been um, taken away. And a big 
part of that is just a fairer distribution. And and again, like I I, I just want to I want to emphasize that not one company can do this by themselves, and it has to be in a systemic. You have to be in a systemic um, thought pattern, you know, where we have to have collaborators and we work with to create better systems at the same time as you know thinking within our business, like how can we have a fairer distribution of risk and reward so that you know more money can be returned to people who had created that wealth. I think that that's a really interesting point, what you said about reducing harm, because I think when you talk about companies that have connections to colonialism or are the product of colonialism, there's a lot of talk of doing good, but there's not a lot of talk of reducing harm. Yeah. Because that's, that feels bad. Because that's a negative. So you have and to acknowledge that you created harm. <laughs> yeah, you, you yeah. created harm, and you yeah. need to reduce that harm. Because um, it's easy to paint it the other way around. It's easy to say, "Oh, we're doing good work," and it's easy to see like upward projections, or it's easy to see impact that's benefiting people as good. But it's like, no, you're reducing harm because you fucked it up to start. Um, yep. So I want to talk a little bit about how Tone Lay at least attempts to reduce harm. And one of the things that I was really interested in when I was on your website was how you talk about the supply stream. And and this is maybe like a weak visual. Um, sometimes when I'm reading things, I, I, I try to visualize them. But when I think about a traditional supply stream, it, it almost seems like a linear, it, it seems like a graph that's going up and it starts with makers at the very bottom and then ends with CEOs or people who own the means of production or own power often mm-hmm. ending up with the most resources. But yep. it seems like at Tone Lay, you're trying to make that a circle. And I was wondering what that looks like. Yeah, no, that's, that's um, what we're trying to go for. Um, you know, I mean, I think that the business models of the future, you know, we need to be thinking and the systems of the future beyond just business models, because I think there's also a tendency, I think right now there's an emphasis on like businesses are going to do everything and that's not a good (laughs) way to think about it. Um, But, you know, I think in the business models of the future, first of all, they need to be something that benefits everyone. And we need to be thinking about building our businesses in a way where everybody can thrive and benefit and cooperate to build something that actually does center the benefit of everybody involved. And that includes the customers, that includes the owners, that includes the investors, but it also has to include, of course, the people who make the products because they should be core to, you know, the people who make your products should be core to your business Um, and treating them well and making sure that they're benefiting should be your highest priority (laughs) because they're making the very thing that you, you know, are selling, right? And that just seems very fundamental to me, but it's so opposite of what the traditional fashion industry looks like in and so far as that in the traditional fashion industry the people who make products are actually not even included in the businesses so you know at the beginning of the pandemic when you know a lot of retailers were having shut down they just canceled their orders to their suppliers and in some cases a lot of those products were already produced or even already shipped and the brands just said no we're not going to pay um And it's like people, a lot of people from the outside are like, how can they do that? How can they not pay their workers who made their products? 
And the fundamental problem is that those workers are not even considered an important part of those businesses, which is kind of mind blowing when you think about it. Well, Um, it's a very common theme in a lot of businesses, the idea that the people who make the thing that is valuable are the most disposable. And that's very true in coffee as well um, on kind of both ends of the supply stream. And I don't think we talk about the producing end as much in terms of disposability, but certainly for baristas, we treat them as disposable. Yeah. And it's this idea that, I mean, I think like that knowledge is more, and this is, you know, we, the global North has sort of like commodified knowledge or creativity as more valuable than, um, labor or more valuable than like the skills that it takes to create a high quality product, um, or the skills that it takes to farm a high quality product, you know, a high quality commodity, um, that that is not as valued as like the idea. So, you know, you see this really in tech, I think is a really extreme example, but that basically like tech companies, their whole goal is to outsource all of their like production of anything physical mm-hmm. and to, to, to consolidate the knowledge and the creativity as the value. And you see that to a certain extent in the fashion industry as well, where like brands and patents are more valuable and even technologies are more valuable than the like labor that goes into a product. And not only the labor, but even like, again, I, I want to emphasize that like, it takes a lot of skill to make a high quality product in the fashion, in, in fashion. And there's a reason that robots don't make garments because it's hard to make, like, it's very hard to make a good garment. <laughs> and, right. and, and, we, you know, weaving and dyeing and all of these things, like these things take a lot of skill. And we, we don't value that anymore, because we've kind of I think I think a big part of this again goes back to colonialism because um, Europe was not resource rich, and so they went to all these other countries to extract their resources and kind of made their value the the supposed knowledge that they had that was that they sort of imposed on other people, right, through religion and writing and language and history and all these things and like they quantified that as their value and I think that's kind of I mean this is a little esoteric but it's kind of led to this idea that there's like this knowledge class of you know knowledge creative creative people who (laughs) like even to the even to the point like in the art and in the art world that like the highest valued artists don't even make their product they have like you know workers who like make their things that get paid far less than they do for coming up with the idea (laughs) you know like some some something that you said that was really interesting too is the need to build businesses that take care of everybody because I think it's really easy for people to almost default on how the system works as an excuse to not pay people so I was actually just even reading a Facebook like chain that um, a friend of mine who's a chef started and it was all about how restaurants can't afford to pay chefs or cooks more money and while that is true because the restaurant industry is is deep deep like deeply deeply flawed I just thought how interesting it was that this person was able to justify the lack of high wages as a 
just a problem that we have to deal with. Like, oh, I, but like, I still deserve to have a business. Like I still deserve to run a restaurant and make money at the exploitation of others. And I think that that's probably true in a lot of industries, including the fashion industry. Totally. And I mean, that really resonates with me because I sort of had this realization probably a few years back where I felt some of those things where I'm like, I have to conform to the, you know, I have to conform to some of these things that I don't like about the industry in order to survive so I can keep paying people and so forth. And I was kind of just, I don't, I can't put my finger on exactly what, but I think what I realized is that for me, like I have no interest in running a business that isn't a hundred percent true to my values. So I would rather run no business at all or a smaller business, a smaller version of this business than to compromise on some of these very important things. And like, if our goal is to, you know, create this more fair micro system within the system, um, I want to do that 100%, even if that means being most of the time, it doesn't mean closing down, it just means being much smaller. And I would rather do that like 100% on a small scale, than to grow really big and have to compromise. And so a lot of that pressure is actually coming from not just sustaining as you are, but there's a pressure to grow. And I think usually when you have to grow, that's where these compromises start coming in. And so, um, you know, a lot of that pressure does come from investors, you know, and I've seen a lot of so-called sustainable fashion companies um, when they raise money, you know, they end up compromising because eventually those investors are going to be like, well, now you not only I'm not happy with 20% profit anymore, I want you to make 25% profit. So now I want you to make 30% profit. So how, how do you come up with that profit? And then you end up squeezing things or you have to grow in some unsustainable way. And so I think the pressure is often not just about making a decent amount of money, but making a lot of money and you know, who gets to consolidate that wealth. And, and so I don't know, I, I, I have been, um, I think for me, I kind of realized, like, I would much rather stay a bit smaller and just be more authentic to what we do um, than to grow and compromise, because that would be, I don't know, that would just be a fundamentally, like, I don't want to run a business like that. So why would I, right. like, why would I do that? I'd rather close. Right. Right. And I think that that's okay. That's something that I think when people talk about owning businesses, like that's, that's failure, but it's not actually had somebody on my show, maybe two years ago, he ran a coffee shop in New Jersey and maybe I think it ran for a couple of years and then he shut down. And we talked about that. We talked about what success was and what failure was. And he was like, no, I succeeded. I ran the coffee shop I wanted to run. I paid barista as well. They knew their schedules ahead of time. I didn't devalue their work. Yeah, I closed because I ran out of money, but yeah, I didn't fail, um, which I yeah. think is a really interesting framework because in on, on the converse, what you were talking about, and especially you're in San Francisco, you're in like the kind of the epicenter of VC funding and cap and like, Um, venture capitalists like jumping in and like demanding those like okay we made 20 percent returns this year i want 25 this year i want 30 this year so that can feel really like 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 it's embedded in our system that we are expected to grow constantly 
on that with like the kind of impact or do good space, I think there's also this added pressure to grow your impact. Like I have talked to a lot of investors and we've, we've actually raised some money, but luckily we've been able to raise it in a way that's very values aligned. That could be another conversation, but um, you know, there's a lot of people, investors who are trying to get into the impact space now and be like, oh, well now we're an impact investor, but we want you to make the same amount of profit. And also we want you to impact the lives of a million people. And I've actually been passed up for funding versus other businesses that I knew were not like they were deciding to make those compromises where it's like, oh, like I want to be able to employ like a thousand people, but their lives are only going to be like, they're going to get like 10% more wages instead of having like a very radically different business model. So Mm -hmm. compromising these like supposedly, like for incremental quote unquote impact versus like radically reforming the system. Because I think if you want to radically reform the system and really challenge those, you can't take traditional investment capital. Like it's just fundamentally not aligned in my opinion. And Mm -hmm. so, but you know, people think they need money and they want to grow. So they decide to make those compromises. But I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's tricky. No, it's, it's, it's tricky. And it's weird because it, it, a lot of it involves almost deprogramming your brain a little bit. And I can see where saying, oh, we hired a thousand people feels really good. But like you mentioned, yeah. if the impact is really minimal, would that impact be better served fundamentally changing the lives of a few people in a really radical way as opposed to being able to like put in your like pitch deck look at all the people we've helped um that's what that feels like to me it feels like very much like I'm going to put a pitch deck together and put these numbers together and it's kind of disingenuous because it's like well you know people can already get jobs in Cambodia for 10% more money so just because you went and created all these jobs I don't know it's just like it's just weird. It's like, oh, you're responsible for employing these people, but it's kind of taking away their agency for one thing. Right. But I think the impact of Tonle, you know, one thing I realized is that for me, I really want to create a business model that challenges the norms. I don't want to just be like, oh, look, I employ these people. Great. I'm good. I want to create a model that people can look to and that can really challenge those norms and say, look, it's possible to do this, you know, and that we can really rethink and question these structures. And like you say, do like things that businesses don't do, like being open and transparent about our mistakes, being honest about the challenges and the compromises that we do have to make sometimes and why we made those choices. Businesses typically don't do that, right? Like, and I'm not saying, oh, look, we're so good, blah, blah, blah. But our customers are coming to us and saying, this is so refreshing, you know, and I wish more people did this. And for me, that's, that's worth it that we can like, set a standard that there is this different way of doing things. And no, it's not going to be perfect. We are living in a terrible system. And we're all participating in different ways. But it's about choosing how you participate, and then being (laughs) transparent about how you've chosen to participate. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. And I think that that that's something I've been thinking about about too is that it can be really easy to see a problem like exploitation and colonialism and how the supply stream works and think 
this is too overwhelming. There's too much. But it is okay mm-hmm. to choose a part that you can tackle. And yep. I want to talk a little bit about one of the things that I think is really interesting that Tonle does. Um, thinking about that circular supply stream is that customers are very much involved in that process. So something that I think is really compelling about the way that your business works is that the final point of sale, like the customer now has the thing that they have bought and it is done and that's the end of it, is not the end for Tone Lay. There's a resale market. You talk about aftercare, how to take care of your items so that they actually last a long time. And you also have this acknowledgement that the customer not isn't necessarily always right. So I was wondering how you think about your customers. And not to say that you're not not grateful for them or anything like that, but customers are equal to employees. Like you you can't treat customers as more valuable. They're just not. Right. And yeah, I mean, I think that this concept that the customer is always right, it also results in so the way that often manifests in the kind of fair trade fashion world is through like also white saviorism where um you know, it kind of is like, oh, buy this handbag and save a woman from sex slavery. <laughs> or like, right. it's like it's, buy it's, 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 it's... and save these poor people in Africa. And it's like, that is super disempowering, obviously, right? But it's this very white savior mentality and this very colonialist way of looking at, um, of looking at produ- like production, like, oh, the fashion industry is bad, but you can buy fair trade and you can save people. And then that bleeds as well into the kind of the founder narrative that we were just talking about of like, oh, go to Cambodia and like save people through providing like these jobs. Well, it's not, you're not providing jobs. Like people have a contract to work with you and you're mutually deciding to work together to make something right. And to sell something. Um, and so, you know, I, I never, like, I mean, I used to, but I've changed this. I don't say like I'm providing jobs for people. I employ people. <laughs> they choose to come work at Tonle, right? They always have the agency to leave as well. And, you know, people keep choosing to work at Tonle every day because it's good for them and it's good for us. It's a mutually beneficial agreement. Um, and at the point at which it's no longer good for them, I hope that they find, you know, something else that they like better, right? Um, and so the same is kind of true with our customers. Like, the way that I see our customers and the way that we've tried to articulate this is that the relationship of a person who buys a product to the person who makes it is a mutually beneficial agreement. You get a beautiful handmade product that has a lot of integrity and, you know, um, you know, labor and skill put into it and they get paid fairly for their labor and skill and design. Um, that's a mutually beneficial agreement. And it should be seen as such. Um, so when you're a customer buying from a, a fairly made, a company that's trying to produce things in a fair way, yes, you're supporting their work, but equally you're getting something out of that. Well, I also appreciate that you talked about the use of language because that's something that I've been trying to think about, even in the job market, the idea of how power works. Like I'm providing a job, I'm giving you a job. It's like, no, 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 no. We live in a capitalist system where we have to work. Jobs yeah. are there. You can employ people because that's what the relationship is. But to acknowledge that this is this is the system under which we work versus this like paternalistic, like this is the thing I'm giving you. 
is really, really interesting and something I want to explore more kind of in the coming months, um, just to start to wrap up our conversation, just because we're going um, a little bit longer than some of the normal episodes that we do. I was wondering if you could talk about what you want people to know about Tone Lay. Um, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, that's a hard one. I would say the most important thing to me about Tone Lay is that, or that I want people to really understand is how different it is that we do our own production. You know, that our production, our sales, our design all work in tandem is so is really seems very fundamental, but it's very radically different than what's going on in the traditional industry. And so I guess I just want, you know, when we talk about, oh, Nike makes this shoe or H&M makes this t-shirt, it's, it's not correct, right? Like Nike doesn't make anything. H&M doesn't make anything. They don't own factories. They don't operate manufacturing facilities. They don't grow the cotton, you know? So I just, I want to really emphasize that we, I think the first thing that really needs to happen to change these systems is that I want customers and kind of people who are new to the industry to understand that there is this major disconnect between and and where value is placed you know is not on the production and i think we need to recenter um the people who are producing our goods and that includes factory owners that includes you know that includes the people who are running production because they are the experts in making products and usually when we talk about sustainability when we talk about um you know brands are if you if you go to a sustainability conference, you will just see like the leaders of all these sustainability departments at brands, but they're not the experts in sustainability. They're not doing the sustainability work. The sustainability work is being done by the factories and the workers and even the factory owners. They're the experts, yet they're rarely involved in these conversations. So I, you know, I, one of the things I'm most proud of with Tonle is that in within our business, that's all very integrated. And we have people running production who also do production. And we have people, you know, working on design who also are involved in the production of the garments. So that is all designed as a system to work that way. So I think, you know, in thinking about language and thinking about how we reframe this, like we need to analyze that and analyze like how we talk about even these brands. Um, and you know, the long-term implications of that. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a really fun conversation. And I think it might be easy to be like, oh, how does fashion relate to coffee? But there are so many themes that translate to both industries. And I really thank you for going in depth with me. That was Rachel Fowler, co-founder of Tone Lay. You can learn more about Tone Lay by visiting their website, www.tonelay.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. I'm just looking for a better day. Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund. We pay for website hosting. 
and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode and tag us, that would be amazing. We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.